Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Embracing what's fun with Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080. A lot to unpack with our opening song here called Different Trains, which I will do later on in the program, I promise that. You've got spoken word, you've got trains, you've got a string quartet. I'll tell you all about it later because today's program is all about trains, so I wanted the music to be appropriate and therefore also about trains as well. So when I think about trains, I think obviously about transportation, but I think about history. I think about an earlier, simpler time in American life, and not just in America necessarily. I think America because I'm in America, I'm from America, but it was a worldwide phenomenon going back to the 1800s. But I also think about being a child and my trips out west by car with my parents and every single time we drove west, we drove through Danbury. And in Danbury is the Danbury Railway Museum, not too far away from the New York border. Exit 6, I believe it is, on I-84 in Danbury. I drove by this probably a million times as a child, as an adult, just over the summer in July when I went and I visited family and I drove through Danbury. There's a sign that says Danbury Railway Museum. Stop in and see it, you know. It's trying to promote it to travelers. I went by this for years and I always wondered about it. It, it just struck me as interesting. I've been to the Essex Steam Train Museum. I have been to the Trolley Museum in East Windsor. Never to the Danbury Rail Museum. And it was after this July when I drove through yet again for the millionth time that I said, I ought to do a talk show about it. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to focus on the Danbury Railway Museum. But before we go to all trains nonstop for the rest of the hour, I do want to do a shout-out. Now, there was a time in American broadcast history where shout-outs on talk radio were kind of frowned upon, not good technique. But, I mean, it's 2023. I think that that rule is a little passe and old. So I would like to do, just real quick, a happy birthday shout-out to Madison. Madison is 10 years old, and we're getting her hooked on on radio at such a young age. Her father, Sean, who is a longtime friend of mine and listener of WTIC News Talk 1080, he was listening to WTIC before I was born. And then he was trucking overnight, and he would listen to WTIC overnight, and now he's listening with his 10-year-old daughter, and she's celebrating, like I said, her 10th birthday today. So, Madison, very happy birthday to you. From all of us at WTIC News Talk 1080. When I went to the Danbury Rail Museum, the first person that I spoke with was the conductor of the train that I was going to be riding. They have, I think, about 70 different pieces of train equipment, including cars, but there are other pieces of equipment. There are engines and so on that they have in the backyard, which connects to main live tracks that Amtrak uses. However, we really don't go on to those tracks. Instead, they just keep everything mostly contained to the yard. And they have it hooked up to a diesel engine, and there's a passenger rail car on which people who visit the museum can go for a ride. On the weekend, they'll do two or three rides a day. They're open usually Saturdays and Sundays. And so I go on to the car, And there's the conductor to greet me. And I said, would you talk to me? I'm with WTIC News Talk 1080. So I got a little interview with him. His name is Jeff 
von Wagenen. And I said, Jeff, what is the conductor's role? Well, you see uh, lots of uh, conductors on Metro North, uh, but they're mostly all trainmen. There's only one conductor, and he's in charge of the train. And uh, the engineer can't move the train uh, without the conductor's permission. Here at the Railroad Museum, we serve the same function. The uh, conductor uh, makes sure everybody's seated and uh, uh, lets the engineer know when we can go. I love that hat that you've got on, and it looks like it's a very historic hat, is it? Well, that the hat itself uh, was purchased at the, uh, the Springfield train show that's held every uh, in, uh, January up in Springfield, Massachusetts, but the badge is, is historic. It's an old uh, New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad badge. I was going to say, it looks very classic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I do love it. I do love it. Now, what made you want to be a conductor, or what got you involved in the museum here? The reason I wanted to be a conductor is I could be as far away from Jose, our president, as possible, and there he is. <laughs> Hi, Jose. <laughs> no, that, that's not really true. Uh, I've, I've loved trains since I was a little kid, and we have uh, most of our visitors are little kids, and uh, some of us never grew out of it. Do you remember riding trains, maybe some of these classic trains that we have here on display at the Danbury Rail Museum? Oh, absolutely. Uh, when I was uh, uh, about waist high, uh, I rode a train with my grandmother to see my cousins in Cleveland, and it was uh, an experience I still remember today. I'm thinking about some trains that would run from New York to Chicago to Los Angeles, right? It was really a huge way of transportation in the old days, but people still use trains. And just looking at all the people here today at the museum, there's still people interested in train history. Yes, well, uh, right behind you is, is a car that went for, between New York and Chicago on the 20th Century Limited. That was New York Central's express train, 16 hours. And, uh, of course, uh, when the DC-3 came along, you could do it in four and a half hours. So, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, we have some classic equipment that uh, went uh, across the country, and we also have some uh, local equipment that Metro-North has donated to us. Jeff, is there anything else you'd like to add? I know you've got to conduct your train. Well, I've, I see I've got some passengers here, so I'll, I'll turn you over to uh, Jose. It was a great thing to see a bunch of families lined up to get onto the passenger car, which specifically was a 1925 Redding coach car. And as he said, Jose was right there. I didn't know Jose was by me. I hadn't met him at that point. He was trying to find me. And since I had a WTIC microphone in my hand and I was interviewing the conductor, I think he thought, you know, safe bet, that must be Morgan Cunningham. Well, when we get back from the break, we're going to listen to excerpts of my conversation with Jose Alves, who sat next to me on that coach car. This is WTIC in Hartford. This is Brian from Simsbury, and you're listening to Spotlight Connecticut with my friend Morgan Cunningham. This week, we are exploring the Danbury Railway Museum. Obviously in Danbury, that's in the title, not too far away from New York, and it's just off I-84. Pretty easy, I don't know, maybe two, three minutes off of the highway. It's on White Street, not too far away either from Western Connecticut State University. And hey, there is a partnership between the Danbury Rail Museum and the Holiday Diner, which is just across the street, also on White Street, not far away from I-84 or Western Connecticut State University. And 
Morgan, hold that thought. I will tell you all about the Holiday Diner and my experience there a little later in the hour. First, we've got to talk with Jose Alves. I've got my interview that I recorded with him while we were on that 1925 Redding coach car. I had just boarded. Minutes ago, we heard the interview with the conductor, Jeff Von Wagenen. I asked him what a conductor's job was, and basically he gets people seated. He welcomes them onto the train, and he tells the engineer when it's time for the train to start moving down the tracks. In this case, the Danbury Rail Museum, although connected to live tracks, stays within the actual yard. So you maybe go, I don't know, about a quarter of a mile, maybe a half of a mile. Not too fast and not too far. So Jose Alves, he sat down next to me. He is president of the Danbury Railway Museum. And I said, Jose, what can I expect? Because I have not been on a train of any kind in a number of years, and I've never been here specifically to the Railway Museum in Danbury. So I said, what do I need to know to start off this ride? Yeah, other than all aboard, there's this. All right, this is a 1925 train. This is a 1925 coach built by Bethlehem Steel of Pennsylvania for the Reading Company. If you ever play Monopoly, one of the railroads that you can buy on the board is the Reading Company. Uh, and that's what this is? This is one of the cars from the Reading. This would have been a regular commuter car uh, that they would have used on their line. We have five... Reading cars in the yard that were donated by the state of Connecticut throughout their lives. They went from Reading to SEPTA uh, and then to CDOT, the Housatonic Railroad, and then to us. About when would this train have ceased original service and then obviously ended up here at the Danbury Rail Museum? 1994, 95. Oh, that recent? Uh, yes, because after serving on SEPTA, they were sold to Condot and then leased by the Housatonic Railroad for uh, tourist trains. And then eventually uh, they were leased to us and then we uh, were donated them. About how far are we going to go today on the ride? We are uh, going just to the other side of our 10 acre rail yard. It's about a quarter of a mile out there. We are pretty much confined to our rail yard. Uh, we don't really go outside the fence. We're completely pretty much surrounded by a Metro North commuter railroad. So we, we stay within our yard. It's a very short ride. It's a very slow ride. It's like the lazy river of train rides. And it's perfect for first time train riders and little kids. It's funny because the conductor said we've got two speeds, slow and stop. So this is no bullet train. No, no, this is uh, yard speed is what we call it. In theory, how fast could this train get up to? Do you know? Back in the day, anywhere up to about 60 miles an hour going at speed, uh, probably more. Jose, anything else before we get moving here that I should know about this train or about this part of the museum, the actual train ride? Keep your hands inside the train and uh, the air conditioning is on. <laughs> Uh, as you can see, the windows are open. Yeah, the windows are open. That's the AC. There's no air conditioning in the 1925 Redding coach car. The AC is the windows open. And when you're moving, some wind comes in. And it was a sticky, rainy day, kind of like today when we were on that train. So I guess it could have been worse. It could have been 100 degrees. 
I'm Morgan Cunningham at Spotlight Connecticut. We're talking about the Danbury Railway Museum. Now, as you heard that all aboard, at some point when Jose and I were talking, they shouted all aboard, which told everybody, get on the train because we're about to get moving. And then not too long after Jose and I talked, you heard this, the train tooting, which is part of its signature signal that uh, we're moving, get off the tracks, get away from the tracks. It's just basically a safety measure, if you will. So then after the train ride, which took about 45 minutes exploring various different parts of the yard, and we got off at one point, we saw a display about how a steam engine would get water from a well pumped into the steam engine, and we got to see a few other pieces of history and artifacts that are there at the museum in the yard. Jose and I wandered off and we left the guided tour and Jose took me on a tour of his own. And the first thing that he took me to was kind of their show-off piece, if you will, which is a Tonawanda Valley 20th Century Limited. And as he's going to talk about in a few minutes here, it's the only one that really exists to this day that is known to survive dating back to 1928. It is a luxury car. And the first thing that we saw in it was a buffet lounge. But before we go inside, he told me all about the history from the outside of the Tonawanda Valley 20th Century Limited. In the 20s and 30s, up until I believe the 40s, 20th Century Limited was an all first-class train, like a five-star hotel on wheels. Uh, This is just one car of the whole train. So, you know, imagine another number of cars ahead. You'd had, you would have dining cars, you'd have sleeping cars, you'd have uh, lounges, and uh, that's what made up the whole train. This car is unique because it was the observation car on the tail end, so it has the open uh, platform. Think. FDR or, or uh, uh, Truman standing on the back platform and, um, and uh, that open platform would have been open to the, to the riders. They'd be able to sit out there and enjoy the views. This car also has two uh, sleeping rooms in it as well as uh, two different lounges. So think of the whole train kind of compacted into one car. The fare was much higher for this car just because it was a little bit more private. And then he broke out his keys. He's got a lot of keys. I don't know how he keeps track of them all. And he found the key that took us inside. And the first thing we saw was the buffet lounge. It's called the buffet lounge because just off of this room is a small kitchen that would have been called the buffet, uh, which is a small kitchen for snack and drink service. You can step inside there and see... There's almost no room at all. It's very compact. You can see there's a step there and a handle there to help you reach some of the taller cabinets and shelves. Uh, There was an ice box, which is right here. And then the uh, coffee and hot water equipment was all coal powered. Those drawers on the bottom pull out to reveal the uh, trays for the hot coals. So you would literally put the coal right under there. Yep, and that's what would heat your water for coffee or tea. And was there running water? I'm looking at a sink. There was running water on board, yep. Uh, Because you have the bathrooms and and other facilities on board. And a tiny sink, if that. How many people would normally be working the buffet, do you know? Probably wouldn't have more than two porters per car. 
Pullman porters were the first black union in the country as well. And when we left the buffet lounge, we ended up at the bedrooms, though that's not what they were called at the time. Drawing room A slept three people and uh, had its own bathroom. If you step in there, you can, right now it's set up for night use. Uh, you can see some of the uh, funny amenities that you wouldn't see today, like ashtrays all over the place. Um, built into the wall there, I think. Yep, built into the wall. And then if you also notice, uh, right above the ashtray is a call button. Those would ring out a bell at the other end of the car and notify the porters that you needed uh, service or assistance. And I asked him what other amenities were available. If you notice, under the bed, there's a metal box uh, and there's a little tag calling it a shoe locker. You would put your shoes in there. At night, the porters would come through, open up the boxes from the outside. There's a separate door in the hallway. They would shine your shoes and put them back in the box so that your shoes were shined the next morning. They also were able to press pants and I believe you were even able to get a haircut on board the train. You weren't kidding when you said this is five star on wheels. Yep. If you look at the commode, there's a 110 volt outlet for shavers. There's even a little slot for used razor blades too. And when you're looking at this train, whether you're on the outside, but especially when you're on the inside of it, talking about the Tonawanda Valley 1928 20th Century Limited Luxury Car, you notice that this thing is in perfect condition, and I asked him if it was restored. Uh, when the car was donated to us, it did not look like this. We put in many man hours of work, uh, a lot of research. This is the only uh, valley car left. By that I mean there were a number of these cars built to these specifications, and throughout the years all of them have been scrapped except for this one. It did not look like this when we retained ownership of it. It was used by a uh, doctor as his apartment in Old Saybrook while he was doing a residency at Yale. Huh. After he found more permanent housing, uh, the car went into storage and was eventually moved here to the property where it was eventually then donated. I could honestly see this being an apartment, but that is weird. Yeah, no, it is pretty weird, but it's also pretty cool. I mean, it's like the ultimate RV. And even today, you can charter private cars uh, that can be tacked on to the back of any Amtrak train. And my jaw dropped with this answer when I asked Jose, how long did restoration take? This car was in our restoration area for, I want to say, a good 10 years, getting all the work done to it. Wow. Is it usually that long, or is it uh, just because this is such a specialty car? Taking into account, it is a 80-something foot-long car with a full interior and uh, exterior that needed to be rehabbed and painted. Uh, it, is a, it is a long time for a car. With a freight car, you're looking at metalwork, uh, exterior painting and stenciling, with a typical freight car. With a flat car, you're looking at metalwork, painting, and then laying of the deck. Jose Alves, you can find him and the Danbury Railway Museum on the web, danburyrail.org, or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at danburyrr. I'm Morgan Cunningham at Spotlight, Connecticut.
Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Well, if you're wondering what this song is or if you're wondering about the song that was used to open the program about a half hour ago, well, they're excerpts from the same song called Different Trains by Steve Reich, and I'm playing them because I wanted to prove a point that history is important and that you can learn history in a variety of different ways, right? You can learn through music. You can learn through art. You can learn through museums like our focus today on Spotlight Connecticut, the Danbury Railway Museum. But sometimes, I don't know, maybe I'm just being cranky, and I don't want to be cranky, but sometimes I just get the feeling nobody cares about history. I know that that's not true because when I go to places like the Danbury Railway Museum, I see a lot of people of all ages learning something. They're there experiencing the museum. They're there internalizing something. Many of them deeply interested in what they're learning and what they're seeing. Now, Different Trains, like I said, is really historic. It is an artistic audio documentary, and I recommend that you check this out with the composer as a witness. So Steve Reich wrote the song, Different Trains, in 1988. That's when it made its performance debut in late 1988. 1989 was released as an album. It's about a half hour long. It's broken up into three movements. And in 1991, Grammy for Best Classical Contemporary Composition. And if you're wondering why it's important, well, I'm going to read to you the liner notes about this. Now, you probably don't know it necessarily just by listening to the two or so minutes that I've played of it as bumpers today. But Steve Reich writes, quote, The concept for the piece came from my childhood. When I was one year old, my parents separated. My mother moved to Los Angeles, and my father stayed in New York. Since they arranged divided custody, I traveled back and forth by train frequently between New York and Los Angeles from 1939 to 1942, accompanied by my governess. While the trips were exciting and romantic at the time, I now look back and think that if I had been in Europe during this period as a Jew, I would have been riding very different trains. With this in mind, I wanted to make a piece that would accurately reflect the whole situation. So what Reich did was he took pre-recorded interviews with his governess, a retired Pullman porter, and three Holocaust survivors, and then, quote, in order to combine the tape speech with the string instruments, I selected small speech samples that are more or less clearly pitched and then noted them as accurately as possible into music notation. The strings then literally imitate the speech melody. So different trains was then divided up into three movements, America before the war, Europe during the war, and part three was after the war. So as I said, it's an artistic audio documentary. The composer is a witness to this time period. It preserves kind of an unspoken aspect of at least train history, and it makes a statement that all history can be preserved, and all history can be preserved in a multitude of different ways. And so that's kind of the point of today's program, that you can go and experience history in a variety of different ways. You can learn something, whether it's through music or through the museum. We'll be back with Jose Alves of the Danbury Rail Museum in minutes. This is WTIC in Hartford. What's going on, everyone? This is Joe from Hebron, and you're listening to Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. I know people think that I probably got dark there in our last segment before the break, but I'm not trying to be dark. I'm just trying to make a point that history is important, and we've got to learn from our past in order to get into the future. It's songs like Different Trains. It's museums like the Danbury Railway Museum that are preparing us for the present and the future 
with lessons of the good, the bad, the ugly from yesterday. And I think that what I get the most out of the Danbury Railway Museum is just a history and a snapshot of what transportation was like, not just in America, but here in Connecticut. Because obviously this museum, not so nationally focused, it's more locally focused. And so you see a lot of examples from Fairfield County, for instance. There's also, excuse me, examples from New York City in Fairfield County. You could see some things from Greater Hartford and also New Haven at the Danbury Railway Museum as well. Again, very easy to get to on White Street in Danbury, just off I-84, not far away from the New York State Line, not far away from Western Connecticut State University. If you'd like to connect with me, you could do so on social media at MC News Talk. You can also check out the Danbury Railway Museum on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Danbury. RR. Very simple. And their website, danburyrail.org. Back to excerpts of our interview with Jose Alves. Great guy. I asked him about ridership today in general on trains. After World War II and the interstate highway system, ridership on the railroads severely dwindled. And it's kind of sad to see because we talk so much about conservation you can move exponentially more weight via rail, be it people or freight, than you can with rubber-tired vehicles. We're excited to see a resurgence in rail, especially, like I said, as we talk about conservation. Pre-COVID, we were having about 20 to 25,000 visitors a year. Uh, Post-COVID, that number has gone down, but this year was a landmark year for visitorship over the past few months. And when we think about trains today, we probably think about electric trains, diesel trains, maybe diesel-electric, a hybrid. But what you probably don't think of, what you probably think of as an archaic train, is the train that you would normally see maybe pre-1960. The old puffer belly. Yeah, that's right, a steam train. They have a steam train on display. It is not functioning, but it looks beautiful. It's pristine. It's been restored. It's there in the rail behind the Danbury Railway Museum. It's in the yard, and you can walk up to it. You can walk on it. You can see it. And I asked him, what makes up a steam train, and how does it work for people who are not initiated, for people who don't know really what one is other than seeing it, and you see the steam coming out of it, okay? It comprises basically of two parts, water and coal. Now... Take it away, Jose. Steam engine is nothing but an overgrown tea kettle. In the tender, which is the car directly behind the steam engine, there is a big U-shaped tank, and that's what held the water. And in the middle of that tank is a big open space which held all the coal. And in the engine itself, you had two people, the fireman and the engineer. The engineer would operate the locomotive, moving it back and forth as needed, and the fireman's job was to uh, feed coal into the firebox and maintain the water level in the boiler and provide the engineer with a good head of steam so that they can uh, move the locomotive. Uh, it was a very hot job, especially in the summer months. Um, as time progressed and engines got bigger, firemen were still on board, but instead of having to shovel, there would have been a internal screw mechanism that would uh, take the coal from the tender and automatically feed it into the firebox. And I should note that this is an all-day job, isn't it? 
all day job. Yep. Your crews had certain number of hours of service that they couldn't exceed. But other than that, they would be working all day. Did it take any specific qualifications to be an engineer? Or could anybody do it? Did you need a license? Did you have to go to training for it? Usually to become an engineer, you would start off as a fireman or a fireman trainee and then a fireman and then an engineer. When we were recording this, we were standing literally right behind the tender and the hole where you would throw the coal in. That's where we were standing on the steam engine and we were under a little roof because it was actually raining. You can't hear the raindrops, but it was actually raining pretty steadily. I'm thankful that the raindrops didn't come out in the recording. So we were undercover, and I asked him for more mechanics, more information about the operation. How did this, what of these steam trains get started? To get a steam engine started, first step is to make sure you have water in the boiler and to light a fire. After that, you have to wait for the... Uh, fire to heat up that water and while that's happening you're not waiting you are going around and lubricating and cleaning every moving part on this engine this engine needs constant lubrication because of all the moving parts this isn't just hopping in your bmw and driving off nope no <laughs> turn of the key here even our diesel engines require a lot of uh, checks and balances before we start this metal would get extremely hot wouldn't it it would. Everything in here is, all the handles are extremely hot, which is why engineers always wore thick leather gloves. I mean, it is, it is not a pleasant work environment if you don't like the heat. And people probably got injured in the day. Wouldn't they have? Back in the day, before a lot of the modern uh, safety appliances that we have today were invented and introduced, you were basically hired from the neck down, is what they used to say. Uh, many people were injured, and uh, since then, a lot of advances in safety have been made. A lot of the rules in our safety book were written in blood. If you would like to experience a steam engine that's functioning in Connecticut, you can't do it at the Danbury Railway Museum. You could walk onto it like I did. You could see it. You can look into the tender. You can explore everything that there is about their beautifully restored steam engine. But if you'd like to ride on one, if you'd like to experience one, if you want to see one in operation, only two places in Connecticut where you can do that. Number one, and this is probably the most common that people are familiar with, the Valley Railroad in Essex, Connecticut. Or Hawaii Number no. 5 at the Connecticut Antique Machinery Association, which is in Kent, Connecticut. Now, walking all the way to the other side of the yard, President Jose Alves of the Danbury Railway Museum took me to their mail car, which I got to be honest with you, I'm not lying. I wish I had heard about this before so I didn't have to sound this dumb and naive, but I had never really known about mail being involved on the rails. This is our 1910. Pennsylvania Railroad post office car. All post office cars were built and ordered by the federal government and the post office. This car in particular is the largest uh, railway post office car you could have. Sometimes they occupied only half of a car. This one is pretty much the full car with a small baggage section at the other end. In here there'd be nine clerks sorting mail each one of them was armed with a side piece because this was, for all intents and purposes, a post office. The doors would be locked on either end and only the conductor was allowed in here in the event of an emergency and this car was usually right at the front of the train and they would also catch and deliver mail to towns on the fly. 
which means that there's four doors uh, on the car and each one of them could have been equipped with a hook. And this hook would catch a mail bag on a mail crane. We have that set up outside a, a white mail crane with a mail bag on it and a hook right on the side of the car. They would catch the mail bag and bring them in for sorting. At the same time, if there was mail to be delivered to that town, there'd be a pile by their feet and they would kick it out as they were going by, which is why you have the sign, caution, look out for mail bag when train passes, because there would be flying mail bags being thrown off the train. I never knew that. At that point, yep. The floor is original to the car, except for the one small section that had to be replaced. This was an efficient system, wasn't it? It was very efficient. Part of the reason the railway mail system stopped being used was because your trains were being run less and less frequently with dwindling riderships as well. As train service would be cut from certain locations, they'd be replaced with truck, and the mail cars fell out of favor, and the expenses vastly outweighed the benefits. And what can people do at the Danbury Railway Museum for fun this fall, Jose? So our pumpkin patch train runs every full weekend in October, uh, 11, 12, 1, 2, and 3 on Sundays, and 11, 12, 1, 2, and 3, and 6.30 on Saturdays. We take a short trip through the rail yard, takes about 10 minutes to get to the pumpkin patch. When we arrive at the pumpkin patch, everyone gets off the train. It's a, it's a small grassy area on the other side of our rail yard. There we have uh, cookies and uh, local apple cider ready for everyone on board to have. And then of course is the pumpkin picking. Uh, we bring in about 6,000 sugar pumpkins and situate them in the patch for kids to be able to pick their own. Then there's also uh, photo ops in the patch, uh, kind of the, you know, the old-fashioned face-in-the-hole things. And we bring in a, uh, we have a member who lends us use of his tractor, which we have set up in the patch as a photo op. And we also have a number of vintage tractor seats that we set up on hay bales. People get a kick out of those because if you've ever sat in a cast-iron tractor seat, you expect it to be very uncomfortable, but it's oddly comfortable. And once we get through the fall, obviously, then on the other side of it, the holiday season. In December, uh, we'll be fully immersed in the holiday season with our first gift of Christmas Express. Uh, I would say check our website, check our Facebook at Danbury RR. Uh, our website is danburyrail.org. We keep it updated and uh, we would love to have you stop by and take a visit of the museum. And what's this Christmas and holiday display? Our first gift of Christmas Express is a reservation-only event. Parents can either bring their own pre-wrapped present or choose from our online menu. And when they arrive, they drop those presents off at our drop-off window after their short train ride. There's a visit with Santa and Mrs. Claus inside Union Station where Santa gives the kids the first gift of Christmas. Uh, it's been very popular. The kids get a real kick out of being given a big present from Santa before Christmas. Santa is extremely kind, and we're very grateful that he visits us every year here at the museum for this event. And here's a bonus. When you go to the Danbury Railway Museum, and I didn't know this until I got my receipt 
at the very bottom of it, they have a partnership. You see across the street, there's the Holiday Diner. And at the bottom of the receipt is a little coupon. Hungry? Bring this receipt across the street and get 10% off at the Holiday Diner. Well, I would recommend that, especially if you're a fan of milkshakes. Now, I like milkshakes. I've had a variety of them from all over. And Jose said to me, Morgan, if you like milkshakes, you have to go try the one at the Holiday Diner. Now, I'm not trying to do an ad here. I'm not paid to do this. This is just my honest-to-God review. This is me just liking what I had. I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, this can't be that good. Okay, everybody says they've got the best milkshake, and Jose told me that they have the best in the world, and he can't find one that beats it. Well, I got to agree with Jose. I didn't think that I would, and if you don't believe me, you've got to try it out yourself. I had, check this out, the chocolate peanut butter pretzel milkshake. Yeah, think about that. I never, I never considered adding crushed pretzel into a chocolate peanut butter milkshake. I've had plenty of chocolate peanut butter milkshakes in my time, but never one with pretzel. So you add just a little bit of crunch and a little bit of salt, and it works absolutely beautifully. It is a rather thick milkshake. It's not runny. It's not somewhere in between. It's a pretty hearty milkshake, yet definitely drinkable, easily drinkable. And the best part is they give you the right straw. How many times have you had a milkshake with the wrong kind of straw, especially if you have some kind of topping or added ingredient in there like a pretzel and it gets stuck because that straw is just too slender, it's just too small. Well, they give you a really thick, it's like the size maybe of my thumb, a really thick straw, easy to use, very friendly. So when you go to the Danbury Railway Museum, which I encourage just so you can learn a little bit about Connecticut transportation history, Make sure you check out the Holiday Diner across the street. I don't think you'd be disappointed. All aboard the night train. James Brown going to take us out this week on Spotlight Connecticut. I'm Morgan Cunningham. Remember, if you have a show idea, send me an email. Morgan.Cunningham at odyssey.com. Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Embracing what's fun with Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080.